Sponsored by Expressway. With My Expressway, free travel pass holders can reserve their seats online at expressway.ie or at our ticket machines in stations. The Cathy O'Connor Podcast. When it comes to achievements in the worlds of entertainment and music, Sandy Kelly has reached them all. From representing Ireland in the Eurovision Song Contest, performing with country music legends such as Johnny Cash and Willie Nelson, to having chart-topping song with a recording of Patsy Cline's Crazy and to sell out tours. There's so much to admire about this woman. And having read her recent autobiography, In My Own Words, I'm full of admiration for Sandy for being such a gutsy, unstoppable woman. Wow, that's quite an introduction. I'm not sure I can live up to that. Oh, you can, you can, because you are living quite quite a life. So, Sandy, let's take it to the very beginning. I suppose showbiz was literally in your DNA. Absolutely. And I suppose, you know, it's only in recent years, as you grow older, you appreciate everything. And I really appreciate that, that as a baby um, placed in a drawer, in my mum and dad's caravan because we didn't have cots back then and um, if they needed a baby for a play or a sketch or anything in the show i was just just going and and uh, they used to call me the elf just going and grab the elf and out it comes so i think it's quite funny when people ask when i decided to go in show business because i was literally carried on stage in a nappy you know <laughs> Uh, and Sandy, that really seems to be the case of whatever they need, because I know you were literally a magician's assistant. Right. You you were you were doing Shirley Temple songs. I mean, do, do you Child know the parts and plays and sketches? And, and you know, it was a wonderful back then. I can remember from the age of three being on stage, and I can remember looking down at an audience, a sea of people smiling at me and clapping, and uh, always happy. You know, mm-hmm. I had no inclination at all of how poor we were and how difficult a life it was for my parents. Because, you know, my father made the very small caravan, or as they would have called it, a wagon, made the the wagon that we lived in. And I didn't realise that because I don't ever remember my family, my grandfather, Dusky Dan, or my dad's brothers and sisters ever being unhappy. And I always remember the caravans being full of laughter. And so it was a wonderful childhood. And as you said in your first uh, question, what a wonderful way to learn my craft mm. because children are sponges, aren't they? Mm. Mm. So I was absorbing show business, every aspect of it, from a baby. Mm. And I suppose and it's hard for us to imagine these days just what the excitement on a kind of town level of you being there. <laughs> Do you know, like literally, like the kind of royalty well, coming I through? I remember that because if you think about it, people back then didn't have TVs in their living rooms. And in rural Ireland, there was no cinemas. And, you know, there might have been the odd local Cayley, but that was about it. And so I remember accompanying my dad to these little villages and countryside areas to put up the posters. And the children would gather around, just as you've explained, with great excitement in their eyes. And they'd see, um, you know, drama, variety, magic, hypnotism. You know, all this wonder was going to come. So. In a way, my family were the Hollywood stars mm. of, of those little villages and townlands back then. Mm. Huge excitement. Mm. And so, Sandy, I'm, I'm imagining it must have been such an extraordinary 
um, change, to say the least, at the age of nine when you went to live with your grandmother? It was traumatic, mm. you know. I mean, that would never happen now mm. because, you know, you didn't have uh, mobile phones or any communication of any kind um, at that time. And so my mother and father um, decided for some reason not to tell me that I was retiring because I was under the opinion I was the star attraction of Dusky Dance Variety Show at that time. And there was no possible way they could have done without me or taken me off the bill at, <laughs> at almost nine years yeah, of age. Yes. You know? But alas, yeah. without telling me, we were going to visit Granny mm. and I was piled into the back of the car and uh, we visited Granny, but they left without me. And it was very traumatic. Um, my grandmother was a very tough lady. She ruled with an iron fist. She never, till the day she died, at age 106, forgave my father for marrying my mother and disgracing them. My grandmother was poor, but she thought the showman or the show people were way beneath her. Mm. So my father disgraced the family by marrying my mother and she never and I think in a way she she decided she was going to knock that out of me she was going to knock the bad blood out of me and she wouldn't uh, didn't want me singing she'd say you're not going to be up till she passed away she was saying to me I'd say I have to go now granny she was 106 I'm going to do a show and she'd say you're not still at that old crack are you because she never ever accepted that yeah so going back to living with granny going to school um, having to have a bath every night in the mm. tin bath in front of the fire, mm. going to mass, going to church. Oh my goodness, what mm. a shock to my system. Mm. No audience. Mm. My audience were gone. Sure. And, and I imagine, I mean, just the kind of liberation and the community that you came for, which was all performers, the kind of action packed of it, the kind of, I suppose it was a kind buzz. of freedom, the buzz, and exactly. Yeah. And you arriving going, da-da, there she is. Yeah. And then this, 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 utter life of conformity must have been such a struggle. It was horrendous. Mm. And I, I still remember the loneliness mm. of, the, you know, of, of the incredible... Because, because remember, too, I didn't fit in. Mm. You know, we moved from town to town. And I didn't come from any community other than my family roadshow. Mm. And so to be put in... The, in the, and the people in Ballantoke were wonderful. Mm. did become my home. Mm. And in a way, it's the only place now today... I feel I belong, mm. but back then, I didn't. I didn't fit in with anybody or anything. Mm. And uh, going to school that first day, the blessing was the schoolmistress, uh, Philomena Dowling Long was her name, and she saw something in me that intrigued her, and she was different. Mm. And she kept me in uh, after school every day, and she taught me how to sing from my diaphragm which is something I still benefit from today. She taught me about how to groom myself, how to hold my head up, how to walk properly, how to pronounce my words. And that was a blessing too. And I sort of bonded with her and her with me. And uh, that was a little safe haven. And I just, for the most part, I loved my my grandmother, but I avoided her as much as I could. And I got all these little tricks and ways to get around getting into trouble. You know, <laughs> I can imagine the devilment in you. Yeah, well, I yeah. To clean the church at my cousin, mm. and I thought it was a great place because you could stand in the window and sing, mm. and the echo was brilliant. And my granny wouldn't hear me, and you know, then she'd send me to um, pick the berries and the bushes, and we'd bring them to the shop mm. and put them on the book, and then in return they'd get eggs or groceries, mm. or and we had our own eggs, but you get bread or mm. whatever, you know. And so those were my little chores, mm. and I would do that. 
and for the most part just try to stay out of trouble. But is that amazing kind of progression from, I guess, the fluidity of absorbing whatever you need to do in terms of with your with your family to the kind of finesse of enunciating words to the technique of singing Singing with your diaphragm and, do you know, and how to groom yourself and all that? You know, when you were on stage, you know, you looked the part and you were allowed to wear makeup from the age of three. But grooming outside of that wasn't a big part of your day. You were, for the most part, you were getting on with hanging out the washing where you could or, you know, trying to find something to eat or it was a very, had a very glamorous life off stage. But my grandmother had a very structured life and that benefited me my whole life since. And so, you know, I have a lot to be grateful to to my grandmother for because, you know, I was squeaky clean seven days a week. Yeah. I was on my knees praying every yeah. evening for the Angelus. <laughs> um, you know, she had me, I, I, she would often refer to it that she, she, you know, make me into a real person and knock the nonsense out of me. You know, she'd say that, you know. Interesting, yeah. And, but yeah. I managed to keep it 50-50. Yeah, well done, you, well done. Are you interested in trying a new smartphone but still a little unsure? Do you want a phone that offers larger icons with louder sound and an interface that has technology designed for seniors? Well, why not choose from the Doro range by simply visiting doro.ie. Doro, make friends with innovation. When at the age of 14 you moved to Wales, then there was another another layer of difference, wasn't there? Yeah, I suppose in a way it was going back to some sort of part of my childhood because my dad's, the show broke up uh, because I remember them having a meeting in the caravan and my dad saying, don't worry about RT and television because they won't last. And that was going back to when I was 11. And my dad, uh, they were sure that it was just a short term thing and people... You'll never catch on. Never catch on. People would start <laughs> yeah. coming back to see the show. That never happened then. The, the show broke up, went off the road, and they all moved to Wales. And they all lived in the same area in Wales, um, on a caravan um, site in, in South Wales. And so when we moved back because of my mother's illness, we went to rejoin the family. And we started, uh, they were already singing in the Irish clubs and the workmen's clubs. So I went straight back to singing. So in a way, it was different but it, it was going back to what I was more used to mm. and, uh, and comfortable with. Mm. So I was quite happy mm. doing that initially. And I suppose, Sandy, your capacity to adapt that you learned from a very young age really served you well there because, um, again, in the book, you're talking about the difficulty of being Irish and that level of, of difference and separateness. Yeah, there was, there was a lot of... Of course, I was used to a little bit of discrimination and being looked down upon because of living in a caravan and you know whereas I referred to the you know the sea of people applauding and smiling at me on the stage and by the same token if I went to the shop or I wasn't on the stage you were the showgirl or you were belonging to the show crowd Um, and I was often referred to as the showman's daughter which is a a chapter in the book and that's something I'm very proud of but it was something that confused me as a child so then going back to Wales um, we, we were picked on and bullied at school and on the school bus because not only was the school bus stopping at the caravan site mm-hmm. to pick us up, which wasn't ideal, um, to us it was normal, but to, to everybody else it was a, a bit of a, a look down upon situation. And so when we would get on the bus, they wouldn't let us sit down and then add into that we were Irish mm-hmm. and that was looked down upon. Um, and so there was all of that. 
putting up, that sounds very tragic, but to be honest, it made me strong. I think when you live that sort of life, you either become an achiever or a victim. And thankfully, I was able to evaluate it and process it. Um, and it never, ever affected how I was as a person. It, it made me a very strong person, I think. And so it was a good lesson because that, that goes on in society even today. Absolutely, you know. absolutely. Hence my comment about you being gutsy and courageous. So I yeah, think that's I, the yeah, reason, yeah. I suppose. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, I've never thought about it until I actually sat down to write the book. Mm. Because I, I'm a doer, I don't think about the past. Mm. I never listen to anything I record. I never look at anything on TV that I've done, ever. Mm. Unless I need to learn something. Mm. I like to move on. Yes, yes. Maybe that's the way I protect myself or mm. I don't know. And of course, there was another phase in your life when, which was the show band era, and you were singer with the Fairways show band. Describe for us um, what it was like in those days. 800 show bands touring the country. I mean, again, this level of excitement, yeah. the the appeal of, of live music. Yeah, that was a whole new culture for mm. me, really. And uh, oddly enough, I joined the Fairways show band when we came back from Wales, as you say at age 19, uh, almost 20, and I had decided to retire from show business at that point because I'd already spent a short time as a, an accountant's clerk in Wales, and I think my grandmother got into my head. I wanted to leave the showbiz behind and become, like, as she would call it, a real person. So when I came back to, to live in Ballantoro in, in Sligo with my family, I had announced that I would not be singing anymore, and that was great for about three weeks till I had no money, and... Things and we were still living in a caravan, and so it was decided that um, I would go back to to singing. That's how I, you know, supported my family, and that was the reason I joined the fairways. And yes, it was a, it was a different culture. I mean, I was one girl, very well able to take care of myself in a van with what six seven guys, um, but I don't think they knew what they were getting into because you know I could sell sand to the Arabs by the time I was nineteen, you know. And so it was a wonderful time with the fairways and we did all the marquees up and down the country. We had all the places we would stop uh, late at night, three, four in the morning um, to get chips, fried egg and chips. It was a place in Limerick that we used to stop and all meet. So it was lovely. Mm-hmm. And, and that, that went on for, gosh, that band rolled into the Dusky Sisters, mm-hmm. which then, until I changed them to the country music, you know. Mm-hmm. So it was a wonderful mm-hmm. And that's where I met my husband, Michael. We met when we were 19, married at 23, uh, had our first child at 25, divorced 17 years ago, mm. and he's still my best friend. Isn't that marvellous? Yeah. And the, of course, with the Duskies, you were singing with your beloved sister, Barbara. Barbara. Yeah. So again, I'm sure that must have been such a kind of, I'm imagining a sense of reuniting in a sense, almost going back to the roots that you had known. She decided at age 15, she wanted to be in my band. Mm uninvited so she didn't like school at all she hated school and so she announced one day she generally got away so she said i'm going to join your band and i said oh well i'm, I'm not so sure you're good enough to join the fairways you know <clears throat> it was just me at the time i think in the fairways yeah gary had gone and so she was joining the fairways and that was it so we brought her anyway the first night at 15 and uh, she got up with the band and she started this was prior to anybody coming into the hall she started to sing and I swear to God, it was like a banshee howling. And it would keep people away from the dance that night. Nobody would come to hear us at all. So I thought, oh my God, this is going to end bad. But anyway, we kept her, or she wouldn't leave one or the other. 
she wouldn't leave. I think that was more like it. And so we kept her on. And as as you know, uh, she went on to become a wonderful singer in her own right. And she was with me through my whole career. You know, my TV series, uh, she sang in the Eurovision. So she was there for all of my career from that day on. And um, it was wonderful to have her. And But once you win the National Song Contest, and we didn't think we'd win it, and we were so sure we wouldn't win it, we took a gig that night. So when we won, we left RTE television studios carrying our flowers and got into the van and went to do a gig, a dance in the National Ballroom. And all the other people in the studio, all the other contestants, went to our party in the canteen. We didn't even go to our own party. So we went to the Eurovision. Was it a wonderful experience? It was one of the best experiences of our lives. We loved every minute of it. And to represent your country in, you know, in any field, really, is a wonderful honour. And I felt, you know, we weren't given the great, greatest song, but I felt we did the best job we could. Um, and at that time, we made all my daughter, Barbara, come along, and she was in hospital at the time. And so it was a bittersweet time for me in that sense. But just speaking of Eurovision, and I know my sister Barbara, she just loved it. We just loved every bit of it. But you, did it bring us to a higher level? Once you won the National Song Contest, every festival in Ireland booked you. So we got all the bookings for all the festivals. But once that was done, it was done. Because once you lose the Eurovision, Really, you're, yeah. I remember everybody waving us good, you know, goodbye in a big reception at Dublin Airport and all the press when we were going. Well, when we came back, there was nobody there at all. It was just us. You went from kind of a high to a very low, you know. And so that kind of was the way it was. But I had decided I was moving on to country music anyway. Now, t tell me more about that. So what, what was the appeal of country? What was the appeal of country music? Going back to, to the show, my grandmother sang. Mm. She was a wonderful singer, Maggie Woody. And I've been told all my life up until recently, we were all good singers in our family, but nobody like Maggie. My grandmother, she was a wonderful singer. And really, she was the star of the show. And she could yodel. Mm. And I think her song stuck in my mind. Uh, then when I was with the Duskies and even with the Fairways, I was drawn towards Emmylou Harris, Linda Ronstadt, mm -hmm. Crystal Gale, raunchier crossover singers. Mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted to do. Mm -hmm. So I had told Marion uh, and my sister Barbara, who were the Duskies, that I was going to pursue a, a, music, a, a career in country music mm -hmm. um, just after we did the Eurovision. Mm -hmm. And they accepted that. Tragically, we had an accident in the meantime which put the band off the road anyway. And then um, I went on to do country music. Uh, and of course, what a decision that was. Tell me about that fateful night, night in County Cavan when you got that phone call. Oh my goodness. Well, I had recorded a record called Crazy in 1989, only for Shane Hennessy of um, the record label, Crash Records. He literally dragged me into the studio with Frank McNamara to record four Pats Stein songs. Because remember, I wanted to wear tight jeans and I wanted to be Emily Harrison. Mm -hmm. I didn't want to be Pats Stein. And so I said, look, I'll sing them if you let me do them my own way. There's only one Pats Stein, only one Jenny Cash, only one Elvis. So I didn't want to be a clone. I tried to be a clone. And so we did that. And as I walked out of the recording studio, I said to Shay, well, that was great fun because we had the concert orchestra. But it's the biggest disaster in, I in Irish recording history. I can show you, but I know about eight songs. And so a month later, it was flying up the charts, four weeks later, and was the number two biggest selling record that year and got me my first gold record. 
So I was out knocking on stations, knocking on doors of pirate stations, saying, hello, my name is Sandy Kelly, and I had to be single, you know, the revival. This is my new record, Crazy. Would you give it a play? Would you play? So this this jockey in Calvin said, come on in and we'll have a chat, as much as we're doing now. So we didn't have the chat. And as I, as I finished the interview, we finished up, I was grabbing my bag and whatever, and the phone was ringing in the background, and he went to answer it. And I could just hear him saying, uh, uh, hold on, hold on. And he comes back to me and he said, Sandy, there's a man with an American accent on the phone wants to talk to you now. I'm in the middle of Calvin. There's no social media. There's, I don't know anybody from America. Something in OKS, one of the band, winding me up. So I pick up the phone and go, hello. You know, sort of half, you know, fed up. And he said, hi, is that Sandy Kelly? This is Johnny Cash. And I said, no, it's Donny Parton. Pull the other one. It has bells on it. And he said, honey, this is Johnny Cash. And this, I said, yeah, yeah, right, yeah. And this went on. And I said, oh, my God, are you really Johnny Cash? And he said, honey, I've been trying to tell you that. And I said, oh, my God, I'm so sorry. You know, The disc jockey, I thought, was going to faint on this spot because he had just answered the phone to Johnny Cash. And he said, June and I had just heard your interview and your version of Crazy. We're in Oma tonight, and we'd like you to come to the show. And I said, oh, my goodness, oh, really, okay. And, and he said... I'm in shock. You know, what are the chances? So he said, when you get to the show, come backstage, come to the stage door and blah, blah. And so I said, okay. So I hung up the phone in shock. I'm still wondering, like, was this a wind-up? So I went to, to my car and then I looked for a phone box. I didn't even think to ring from there. And I rang home uh, to a neighbor's house and Mike, my husband, took the phone. And I think he thought I was, I wasn't drinking at the time, but I'd say he thought I was in a pub. I said, I'm after talking to Johnny Cash. He just rang me and I'm going to meet him in Oma tonight. Can you come up to Oma and please bring my good skirt and my jacket? <laughs> and he said, are you all right? And I said, yeah, I'm grand. I said, no, just get in the car, get my skirt and my jacket and bring it to Oma. And a pair of shoes, I think. And so that was that was it. So we get back, and I'm in, I'm in the car going, hello, Johnny, how are you? Hi. So love you. I'm, I love your work. You know what you say to Johnny Cash. So I get there anyway. I go to the stage door, and luckily I seen a guy that was a huge fan of mine that takes photographs. And I said I'll never meet Johnny Cash again. When he comes out of that dressing room door, I'll stand beside him, take a picture, and I'll have a picture forever at least. So before he even said hello to Johnny Cash, he came out the door, all ten foot tall of him, in this all in black and knee high boots. And I, I sort of swung in beside him, you know, with the big grin, like I was at Santa's Grotto. And I looked at the photographer and he had fainted. <laughs> <laughs> he was on the floor, Cameron still on his chest. <laughs> Johnny, as if it never happened, just proceeded to say, uh, you must be Sandy and um, Waylon Jennings told me all about you. And what had happened was, I had just done a tour, my first tour with anybody, major, major artist. I had just done an Irish tour with Waylon Jennings. And Waylon had gone back and said to Johnny, who was coming to her, look out for a girl called Sandy Kelly. And that's how it happened. Isn't that amazing? Sure, what were the chances of that? No, absolutely. Uh, and I know that friendship with Johnny Cash, uh, I mean, permeated so many layers. Not only professional relationship uh, with him, but just in terms of the integration of his family with your family, the, the, the layers of connection that you had. It together. was amazing. I remember standing at the side of the stage that night beside June and 
It was a surreal experience, you know. And saying to her, how did this happen? And she said, Sandy, it's a spiritual thing. She said, Johnny Cash doesn't go to every country or any country and ring people up and ask them to come. Even if you think of the people he's recorded with and had on his shows, there are not that many females at least because June didn't have too many females around the place. She, I think she slept with one eye open to keep an eye on him, you know, um, which is, you know, fair enough. But she said it was a spiritual thing. And, you know, the more time I spent with June and Johnny in their normal life, which went on for another 10 years on and off, and June's sister, Helen and Anita, the Carter family, I was able to make sense of it. And we all talked about it. They came from exactly the same background as I did. They, the Carter family were the first major folk, stroke pop, if you like, famous traveling group in America. And they traveled as children with them. They didn't live in caravans, but they were out on the road and traveled from, you know, can you imagine you were out on the road for maybe a year? And, and that was their life, was the stage, the next town, the next town, the next town. And they lived in it together, which I did with my family. And when I started working with the Carter family and June and John, um, there was nothing strange about it for them or I. I just, I mean, I shared dressing rooms with them. Well, not with Johnny, obviously, but with June and the girls. And when I went to live in America with them, they cooked for me. And there was nothing uncomfortable or strange. So that has to have come from where I come from and, and my family background. And we all were brought up in show business. So you knew kind of each other without even saying anything. That's amazing. And tell me, you know, on that basis, as you were saying, of something kind of spiritual, what was it like to, to record and perform with Carver, looking into the eyes of Johnny Cash? Scary. Because, you know, at all times I was aware of who he was. And when we recorded Woodcover, we recorded Woodcover. He gave me the song. I went to Nashville a month. I was I was asked to sing at Fanfare. You and I were talking about Fanfare. You were there with Shea Healy. And it's a wonderful event. And I was singing at Fanfare. And he asked me before he left Oma, will you be coming to Nashville? Have you any plans? And I said, well, I'm going to sing at Fanfare in one month. And he said, well, he wrote down his, address, his phone number. And he said, ring us. We'll be there. And June and I would like you to come over to the house. And now this, I mean, wicked did this. So I said, well, thank you. And of course you're thinking, well, they don't mean that. You know, they won't remember me. So anyway, went to Fanfare with my, uh, with Mike and somebody who was 12 and my late sister Barbara. And I went to the CMA, Country Music Association, uh, on arrival to check in and meet the band and rehearse and whatever. And as I was leaving, I said to the lady at the CMA behind the desk, by the way, Johnny Cash gave me his phone number and she told me that when I come to Nashville, I have to ring him because he wants me to call to the house. And she started belly laughing. And she said, do you know how many people come in here telling me that Johnny Cash wants to talk to them? Dolly Parton wants to talk to them. I said, no, he really does. She said, Sandy, I'm sorry. She said, we can't. I don't have Johnny Cash's number, but we couldn't give out that. So I thought, well, that's it. He didn't mean it anyway. And I forgot about it. Didn't forget about it, but I knew it wasn't going to happen. So the, the last day of our trip, and bear in mind that we didn't have an awful lot of money, so I spent what little money we had on four tickets for the Grand Ole Opry, because we'd never been there. 
and we were going to the Opry on our last night before we left. Great excitement to go to the Opry, the mother church, church of country music. So um, I, was, I was in the room in the hotel, uh, packing, I suppose, and the phone rings, and I picked the phone up, and it's the same woman from the CMA. And she said, you're not going to believe this, but Johnny Cash is after ringing here looking for you. I said, hello, I told you you were looking. Hello, I tried to tell you that, you know, and she said, well, he actually is looking for you, you know. <laughs> so she said, he wants you to come to the house today um, at four o'clock. They're having a party. And of course, then all of a sudden she was driving us. Now she was going to Johnny. She was my best buddy all of a sudden. So I said, she said, I'll pick you up at your hotel with your family and bring you to Johnny Cash's house in Andersonville. So off we went. June met us at the gate. She had one of these Hawaiian necklaces around her, her, her neck, you know, that she had, she was handing them out, putting them over people's necks. And then a marquee on the, on the uh, lawn. And it uh, was a tennis court, actually. And when I went through the door of the marquee, Johnny was on a little tiny little stage with a guitar, kind of to one side of the marquee, just singing. Nobody was passing the cheat of him. And at every table I looked, the faces at those tables, were on the front of albums in my sitting room in Sligo. It was unreal. It was like, oh my God. So like little mice, we went over to the table and sat down to where we were shown. And I'm, I'm sitting there, and it was Mother Maybell Carter's cookbook launch. June was launching her cookbook. And it was an array of food, because they were great cooks. So we went and got our food, and I was putting the first fork fall into my mouth and thinking, but nobody's going to know me here, I can eat her. And Johnny Cash said, I'm over in Ireland and I met this little girl, Sandy Kelly, I thought, oh, Mother Divine Jesus, he's going to ask me up to sing, which he did. So I had to get up to sing. And after I sang and spoke and whatever, uh, his, his manager, Lou Robin, came over and said, Johnny doesn't want you to leave, he wants you to, you and your family to stay. And him and June want to have a coffee with you in the house after. So here I am at the four opera tickets. And it's now like six o'clock. So it's a split second decision. Do you go to the opera? Because I'm now, now in my mind, I'm never going to be in Nashville again. So thankfully I made the right decision and put the tickets back in my bag. I still have them today with stubs on them. They were never used. And we went into the house. June made the coffee. And they told us to just go around the house and you know visit ourselves, look at everything. They sat in the kitchen and take pictures and whatever, and a lovely video of me pretending to take ornaments and put them in my bag. And uh, then I come upstairs and he said, I have something I want you to listen to. And he played Woodcarver for me. And he said, I was going to record this with Emily Harris, but I think I'll record it with you. And he said, if you like it, take it. And if you like it, we'll record it. And I said, if it was three blind mice, I'd record it if it was with you. <laughs> and that's how we recorded Woodcarver. An will phone poke a new wet, an will knappy no foom nis orge wet, nis eskalehusaj, faker no phone in tokatal gwin, on show, egg daro, an von klishte is dany, gidi gohan la hai glina, agus taskina, ta rod egen gogachtina, ta nismo olis egg daro.com.